Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These are the famous opening words to what is known as the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms. And so today we turn to the Old Testament and we turn to words that have been put to song, penetrated the human soul in a way that mere listening to a lecture or reading words in a book cannot. These poetic words are powerful. And we're looking at Psalm 1 today. There's power in what we call poetry. I like to think of it this way. When I speak to you in this moment, if you're listening to a teacher or preacher, it's kind of like the thought is hitting you head on, right? But when you listen to a good song or you, you hear a piece of poetry, it's like it enters into the side door in a profound way. I want to give you an example of this. Last week, uh, we had Freedom Works with us, and Randy Washington preached. And I'm going to do something here that is going to break my heart, but it's, it's an illustration. I want to ask you, do you remember what the three main points of his sermon were? It had something to do with an oar. Raise your hand if, like, maybe. I, I, I think we have a few liars in the room, right? Opportunity, answer, and response, right? That's, that's what it was, right? And so it, it's hard to remember, but there's something about a song that gets right to us. I want to do another illustration, and when I get to the end of the lyrics, I need you to sing them, otherwise this will not work, okay? You got to help me, okay? The Splendor, Chris Tomlin's song. The Splendor of a King... Clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. These are the lyrics. I'm not singing because I do my part and Lorena does her part. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice and trembles at his voice. is on. Sing with me how great is our God. And all sing how great, how great. Good work. If you had not heard that song in for ten more years, if you don't listen to that song for ten more years, and then you heard the intro music to that song again, I'd be willing to bet you can pick it up. When I'm with my mother, she, my mother and my father were here two weeks uh, or last week, and there was a, a, a song from the 70s that was being played, and I go, Mom, you know this one? And she goes, oh, yeah, and she, start, she starts singing it, right? 
You can pick it up, right? The Psalms paint pictures. They bring out our affections in the way that the didactive, instructive letters of Paul 1.123 don't do, right? And so Christians throughout the centuries have noticed this, and they've applied them powerfully to their lives. Benedict of Nursia, St. Benedict in the 6th century, known for the Benedict rule that established uh, monasteries. If you, were, if you were a monk during that time, you would read or sing or pray all 150 psalms in a week. It, the Psalms impacted Martin Luther when he was a, a Augustinian monk in the 16th century and he had moved from his studies to an up-and-coming um, university in Wittenberg. He not only studied the Roman, Romans, he not only studied Galatians and taught them that led to his Reformation breakthrough, he studied the Psalms because they saw, he saw how they pointed to Christ. John Calvin, another reformer, he prescribed these metrical psalms as the preferred songs of the church. And so perhaps as you have read the psalms in your life, you find, oh yeah, that, that's a Chris Tomlin song, right? No, it's, it's really Bible, right? You maybe have noticed that. That much of what we sing actually, I'd say some of the best songs are actually just Bible. Athanasius, known for combating heresy in the fourth century Arianism that undermines the divinity of Christ has said about the Psalms, whatever your particular need or trouble, from the same book you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. What I love about the Psalms and particularly David, its primary, their primary author, is that David goes through all sorts of circumstances in life. And his emotions, his state of mind, we can see them in these words. Psalm 8, how, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A few chapters later, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? A couple chapters after that, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none. The last time I went to the Christian bookstore and I went to the, the decor section, which I never do, I saw signs that said, live, laugh, and love. I saw signs that said, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. But I did not see the one that says, arise, O Lord, and break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. <laughs> missed, missed that one. One moment, David is like, I'm doing great. The next moment, no, I'm not, Right? You read the Psalms and you realize that you, you can encounter all of life's ups and downs if you just read in what's in front of you. They're gritty, the wisdom literature. And I think this leads to a point about genre. So if I were to uh, get into the car, you turn on the radio, and maybe immediately you have country music that turns on. And if you're wise, you'll, you'll quickly turn the dial and you'll go to maybe pop music or you'll have jazz or rap or uh, most preferably classic rock. Um, I mean, I meant to say K-Love, right? And so that's what I mean by genre, different kinds of, of, of music. The same thing is true, friends, when it comes to the Psalms. You have, and we'll talk about this, in the coming weeks. You have lament psalms. 
praise, thanksgiving, celebration, wisdom, as we'll see today, penitential, imprecatory. Lord, take him out. That's imprecatory. And so each of these can speak to our circumstances. And you notice how I'm speaking. I'm not talking about a book that once spoke, but a book that speaks to us. A.W. Tozer, in his little work that, if you can get a copy, you should read it, The Pursuit of God, said this about whether God speaks to us today. He wrote, I believe that much of our religious unbelief is due to a wrong conception of and a wrong feeling for the scriptures of truth. A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever. Now we read the book as the record of what God said when he, for a brief time, was in a speaking mood. With notions like that in our head, how can we believe? The facts are that God is not silent, has never been silent. It is the nature of God to speak. I think a new world will arise out of the religious myths when we approach our Bible with the idea that it is not only a book which was once spoken, but a book which is now speaking. God has spoken and he speaks if we would but listen. And if you have been with us for the last 10 months, here's what we have seen, that God speaks through Paul in letters like Philippians and he speaks to our feet so that we would live in costly discipleship, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But God speaks also through gospels like John and he speaks to our mind so that we would, we would believe in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And by believing, we would have life in his name to our feet, to our mind. But the Psalms also speak. God speaks to us, to our heart through the psalmist and then transforms our wills to live out. And so in the prayer book of the Bible, that's what we're going to see as we spend the rest of our springtime together and in the rest of the summer, how he speaks through these wealth of words so we would do what he calls us to do. Let me pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, Lord, and not selfish gain. Turn, your, turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life today in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that we dread, for your rules are good. Behold, we long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give us life. Lord, we acknowledge that we cannot go wrong when we are praying Bible, and that's what we're doing right now. Lord, we take the words that you have given us, we pray them back to you, and we ask that you would bring transformation. Lord, let us hide your word in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. Let your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, get it in us so that we would know how to live. Transform our hearts. Amen. Look at verse 1. 1. I want to reread that for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See those three right there? Boom, boom, boom. We'll come back to that. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night.
the Psalms open up and confront us with two directions that we must choose. Either we will choose the path of wickedness that leads to destruction, or we're going to choose the path of righteousness and godliness that leads to a fruitful life. And so the Psalms open with this confrontation and tell us, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be the blessed man and not the wicked man, you must be the kind of person that meditates on, delights in, and lives out the word of God. And so this is known as a wisdom psalm for good reason, friends, because it instructs us on right living. It's a wisdom psalm. And so what I want to do just briefly for us this morning is divide it up in three ways. Not just because that's convenient for a pastor to do, but because that's what the passage does. We'll look at one, one through two, this first bit right here, that confrontation, the illustration that comes next about how we're like a tree planted by streams of water. And then lastly, in verse five and six, let's look together at the consequences for which way we choose. So first, God is calling us through his word to choose who we're gonna associate with. Either we will associate with evil or we'll associate with God and his word. And so you see that walking, standing, and sitting with evil, God calls us to reject that this morning. In Hebrew, give this to you, put this in your tool belt for, for interpretation. In Hebrew uh, poetry, when I say poetry, you maybe think of like rhyming, right? You think of rhyme schemes, you think of how the last parts the last word of the, the line matches with the first and the third line, all of that. But in Hebrew poetry, you have what is called parallelisms, where you get a, a couple of lines, or you can get, in this case, three lines, and what they do is that they go together to communicate a point. And here you can see the point is, this is what happens when you get sucked into evil and you, leads to destruction. You can find yourself hanging around, around the ungodly. But in the next moment, you go, how am I sitting in the midst of evil? And you can find yourself shocked by it. That's what we're confronted with. And so at the outset, I want to ask each of us a question. What kind of people do you associate with? Show me your friends, and I'll show you your character. Because your character that chooses your friends, it reveals what is in your heart. If you listen to worthless people, don't be surprised that your counsel that you get is worthless. If you keep company with worthless people, don't be surprised that you get wrapped up in things and you continuously find yourself in places where you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And huh, that just keeps happening. If you sit down in the midst of worthless people and you make your life with them, Worthless people who mock God, don't be surprised that, it, that over time, your heart becomes jaded against God as well. We're impacted by those who are our friends, those who we associate with. And so this is the instruction that we're given. Paul elsewhere in, first, in 2 Corinthians says this. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Someone may go, okay, Aaron, haven't you been saying that we're supposed to be salt and light in this world and how in the world can I talk to unbelievers if I'm not supposed to... It's supposed to associate, as Psalm 1 says, with those who are wicked. How is that supposed, how do you work that out? 
And I would say, yes, we are supposed to engage with lost people. Lost people will never know about Christ unless you speak it out and tell them. But there is a difference in telling and knowing and loving lost people and partnering with unbelievers in such a way that it would cause you to compromise your convictions. There's a big difference. If you find your relationship with an unbeliever leads you to have to choose between them and compromising for what is in this word, that's where you're in trouble. That's what the word calls us to avoid. And I've got to tell you this. This is something I've witnessed over the last 10 years. This is where my heart grieves. In particular, I've seen far too many young Christian women, college age, in their 20s, early 30s, who are terrified of being alone and so compromise on worthless men who have no morals, no work ethic, no backbone, and no understanding of Jesus Christ. And for too many, they sit down. It's not just women, it's also men, I know that sit down in marriages with those who they are not equally yoked with and are surprised when that person could care less about God. Feel those consequences when kids get involved. And they learn that lesson the hard way, that what is worse than being single is wishing that you were. I don't want that for us. And so that word yoke, don't think of it as don't think of eggs here, friends. Uh, think of it like two oxen that are, that are, that are, that are they're tilling the ground and they're connected by a piece of wood over their necks and they're together. What kind of people are you yoked with? What kind of people do you associate with? For some of us who have believed recently in Jesus Christ, you find that your allegiance changed when you believed in him. And so the friends that you used to associate with You now are on different teams. Can you sit down with them truly the way you did before or instead, are you now sitting down with Christ as he prepares a table before you, perhaps in the presence of your enemies? You can love unbelievers, friends, but you can't be yoked with them because you're now yoked with Christ. So the blessed man refuses to take part or associate with evil. Flip it, what he does instead in verse two is he delights He meditates, and he, by implication, lives according to God's word. Choose this. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night, and he lives out God's word. So I want to ask you a couple questions. First one is actually a question that was asked to me this week, and we'll explain the passage by asking these questions. I had someone come to me. um, We were sitting down in a group and asked me the question, and it was this. I want to, I'd be curious to know how you answer. Don't, don't answer out loud, but just think to yourself. Is it selfish? The psalmist talks about delighting in the law of the Lord. Is it selfish for me to pursue my deepest joy in God? Or, or put it another way, am I wrong for seeking my own happiness and using God to get there? You ever think about that? Am I, am I selfish for doing that? How, how would you answer? I'd ask you to consider this. God has made you for himself. He has made you in his image. He knows what you need. And he is the answer himself. There's a reason why he is jealous when we go to things that will never satisfy because he wants what is best for us and it is him. Is it wrong for me to pursue my deepest joy and happiness in God? Never. 
for we were made for him. And so when you think of the blessed man here, when I read this passage, I imagine a guy waking up at two in the morning and he goes, I just got to get into the word. And he's in the word maybe by candlelight um, and he, or, or by a nightlight and he's, and he's pouring over it and he goes, I can't believe I hadn't seen that before. Lord, I was just dealing with this the other day and now you have spoken to me through it. He feels his heart leap at the late hours of the night. He keeps his word, God's word on his lips as he goes throughout his day. I want to ask you, can you say that this description of the blessed man is really true for you? Is it really true for us? Or, or is it like an ideal that maybe the really spiritual people, yeah, they, they do that. But for me, I'm, I'm just kind of normal. That's not really the case for me. Do you delight in God's word? I want to ask you why or why not? And if you don't, if you don't, ask the Lord to say, Lord, if I'm going to stay in this thing called the Christian faith, reveal to me what's in my heart. Get, get me over the barriers that, are, that, that I have put up, Lord. Show me, Lord, why the desire may not be there and make me have that desire. Give it to me. But then consider something else. Let me ask you another question now. How can we move? There's so many of us who read God's word and we read it with indifference. How can we move from passive reading to passionate reading? Reading that has a passion. I think the answer is in that second part there, that he meditates upon it day and night. We discipline ourselves with godly meditation. You want to move from, like, let's just be honest. Are you going to get a whole lot out of just skimming over the four chapters in the book of Leviticus? Or are you going to get something out of deeply going into one chapter and saying, and pouring over it and going, Lord, what are you trying to show me here? The person who meditates, the word there in Hebrew reminds us that it's like he's muttering God's word to himself. He's pouring over it. He's thinking about it. He's keeping it fresh. And this, if you meditate, friends, is the link between Bible reading and prayer. How many of us Read God's word and then try to move right into prayer and you feel like the gears aren't switching to be able to get to that point. Meditate and you will find when you're in God's word, meditating on it over and over, that still small voice begins to speak and it penetrates right into your soul and he speaks to you the thing that you need for that moment. Don't avoid God's word. Go deeply. One author has put it this way. Raking is easier than digging, but you only get leaves. If you dig, you may get diamonds. I think of Kobe Bryant. It's the first time I'm doing a sports analogy. Here it is. Kobe Bryant, I used to watch him all the time uh, as a Spurs fan in San Antonio and watched the Lakers play in the 2000s. And he talked about, after he retired, about how he would discipline himself for for athletic training. And he says, you could do normal two practices a day. He said, or you could do this. Wake up at 3 a.m., practice four to six, relax, 9-11 practice, relax, two to 4 p.m., relax, seven to 9 p.m., relax. And then he says this, which I thought was, was deep. He goes, how much more training by starting at four o'clock a.m.? Do that as the years go on in the separation you have with your competitors and peers. And by year five and six, it doesn't matter how much work they do in the off season, in the summer, they'll never be able to catch up to you 
because of all of the work you did beforehand. Now, I don't tell you that part, friends, so that you would read your Bible to, and then compare yourself with others and go, well, look how much more spiritual I am than you. You'll never catch up. I'm asking you to compare your current self to who you should be and say, Lord, did I rob myself of not getting into your word and hearing what you had to say to me? What if we were disciplined with the zeal that man had for a game? What if we were disciplined in a deeper way even as we meditate and try to understand God's word? Failing to do so, we shouldn't be surprised when we fail to do so that we live in, we'd be so prone to fear, bitterness, and hopelessness. Let's meditate on this thing and not be tossed around. I also want to add this, friends. You see how the godly person is marked by someone who cares about God's word. Show me somebody who calls themselves godly, but yet treats God's word as a launch pad to get off of. I start here, but then I get to the real revelation later that comes to my, my own mind. Show me a person who does that. They call themselves spiritual, but they don't really take, take notice of this book. And I'll show you someone who's not really godly at all. Hold word and spirit together. Don't separate them from each other. You must have the Holy Spirit who inspired this book to illuminate your heart so that you would know what this word says. Keep them both together, word and spirit. Scripture says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself for godliness by getting into his word. And now let me get practical, more practical, because I think we know this. I've been thinking about my mother because I told you she was here about a week ago. She's a medical professional. She's been a nurse for as long as I've been alive. And I remember my mom told me a story about how she used to serve in her early years in the ER. And at a certain point, she had to get out of, of, of working in the ER um, because of what it was doing to her. She said that she would have coworkers that would, they, they would be... Uh, in, in between intense moments and the way they were able to get through all the stuff that they were seeing as, like if you're not a medical professional, do, do you, when you see someone like that, do you remind yourself that they're, they're the ones who are most around pain and suffering and death? You should pray for them. And my mother had said, she goes, I saw that my coworkers, the way they were able to get through their time in the ICU and in the ER was to make jokes and they would make jokes about the suffering of people in the other room. And I didn't want my heart to get calloused and so, and so I ended up moving on to something else. Friend, if you hear me say, meditate on God's word, dwell on it, get into it, and you go, I don't have enough time to do that. Friend, I would just wanna say, you can't afford not to. Like for the medical professional, what if you had words like, I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will keep you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand in tense moments? Or what if you could have the words of the psalmists and other scriptures in you so you could pray those silently to yourself as you're at the bedside of someone who seems absolutely hopeless? Or what about for parents? I think of Justine this last week, August, who's doing a great job right there. He was with his mother, and Justine is reading on the couch her Bible, and she's going like this as the boys are running around her. 
And I thought, what a wonderful picture. I know there's many of you mothers who are in similar circumstances. And you go, man, I wish I could get just undisturbed time. But that little boy down there thinks that all parents and all mothers read their Bible because that's what he's seen his mother do. Don't waste your example and consider that when your children watch you, do they, do they watch you reading your Bible? Do they watch you praying outside of just when it's time for, for dinner? Your example is not wasted when your children see you prioritize God's word. For husbands, how about this? Do you read God's word about how to have a godly marriage? Consider this verse, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you never read that verse, you might never know why your prayer life is dead. Friend, your prayer life might be dead because you haven't read this passage that tells you how to live in a compassionate and peaceful and gracious an understanding way with your wife. You must read these words for the sake of having a godly marriage so that your prayers would not be hindered. We ignore them to our peril, these words. And I need that daily grace because I'm a sinner. I need to be reminded from this word that presents the gospel to me day by day, those words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished, it is finished, it is finished. I need that grace, friends, every single day. Don't miss out on it. God has breathed this sufficient word to us into every aspect of our lives. And we must wield it against the forces of evil. It's not enough to know John 3, 16 and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and only have those two arrows in your quiver when the enemy is coming right out at you. You shoot those two and that's all you got. You gotta have more in here. You gotta go deep, deeper. We're fighting a real fight, friends. Don't live in apathy, but live in godliness marked by meditating and delighting in God's word. The next two points are far shorter. Here we go. He is like a tree, verse three, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Godliness is like a fruitful tree but by comparison, wickedness is like a fruitless seed. That's the picture that is painted here. The wicked person, his life is like chaff. Worthless seed that just goes. And by comparison, get that picture in your mind of a tree planted by an irrigation system. Its roots are going down. Its leaves are, 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 are healthy and it's producing good fruit. And that's what the godly life looks like. And that's what the kind of prosperous person his life really is like. Prosperity in the Christian economy, it's not mere possessions. It's the kind of person who listens to the counsel of the godly. Of the godly. He stands in the way of the righteous. He sits in the company of the hopeful. This is an eternal prosperity that begins now. And so I would ask you, look at the labors of your life, friend. Do they look like the prosperity of the Christian life that is described here. Something that's been sitting in, in my mind that's just been, it's caused me to ache a little bit. I listened to an interview from a 
pastor who had been in ministry probably about 20 plus years. And he talked about how he would work so hard on his sermons and he would get up and he would deliver them. And then he would receive the adulation week in and week out of his people. Pastor, that was such a good sermon. Oh, thank you for that. I needed to hear that today, right? And he said, but yet they wanted to hear something that would inspire them for one hour of the week, but yet their lives never Trans, this never translated into life transformation. So he got sick of it and he quit the ministry because he said, what's the point if it doesn't translate into godly living? I think that's such a tragedy, as chaff, to be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Let us be hearers and doers and look like the tree that is described here. Blessedness and wickedness, fruitfulness, worthlessness. Two different roads and two different verdicts. Last part. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two verdicts at the end of all of this for the godly and for the wicked. For the wicked, it's judgment, it's being cast out, and it's, being, and it's perishing. For the godly, it's being counted amongst the righteous, and his ways being known by God. Jesus says this as much in Matthew's gospel, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are new." are few. And so do you see it? God is commanding us in this passage that we are supposed to seek our deepest happiness in him and his word or else. Be happy in Christ or else. And it is these two paths of choosing godliness or wickedness that is going to go through the rest of the Psalms and our time together. We must choose one or the other. And now, let me leave you with some grace. Because I understand that I, it's not enough to say, live this way. We must go to the foundation. Psalm 1 and 2 are a unit that introduces everything here. And Psalm 1 1 says, blessed is the man. You see that? But go to the end of chapter 2, and it says... Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a unit, the whole thing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is him in this passage? Well, it is the one who has a rod of iron. It is the one who sits in the heavens and laughs against those who mock God. It is the one who is coming from the Psalms perspective, the Messiah, See, here's the thing, friend. There, there is only one blessed man who has lived out the reality of Psalm 1 that you and I are called to live to. He has meditated upon the law of God perfectly. In fact, he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one who obeyed it, clarified it, fulfilled it, quoted it against the devil. And he lived out its message better than anybody else who has ever lived. And this is the thing that gets me. What a thought. What a thought. That Christ is our example 
Christ Jesus is our example for how to live the blessed life, and yet he is also the, the destination of that example he calls us to live upon. He says to you, look, I'm gonna condescend down to your level because I know you cannot live this Psalm 1 life, and I'm gonna live it for you. And then I'm gonna call you to follow after me. And when you follow after me, guess what? I'm gonna lead you to the destination that is myself. Christ can lead helpless man to himself. He is our example and he is the goal of our godly pursuit. He is the one who not only rejected the wicked, wicked pathway, but he is also the one in rejecting the wicked pathway has accepted all those who chose wickedness, stand, stood in the way of scoffers, and sat down with those who mocked God. And when he came back from the dead, he looked at his disciples, and at the end of Luke's gospel, he says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Let me, in, let me let you in on a secret here. We're gonna spend our time in the Psalms together the rest of the spring and the summer, but we're really gonna be talking all about Jesus. It's all about him. He wants what's best for us, and so we must obey him. The scriptures and the Psalms point to him. This is what the great slight Luther discovered. And so let's submit our hearts to the word who became flesh, and let us pursue godliness, knowing that the stakes are high, but at the end, there is a reward for the blessed life as we live it in Him. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.